And no one ever sat down and said, we must have radical democracy. And that means that we don't have consensus. Like it was never theorized because ACT UP did not theorize itself. It just emerged because the organization was trying to serve the needs of people who were dying and who were racing against the clock. And therefore they needed to be as effective as possible. And that just kind of organically meant no theory debates, right? And no bureaucracy. And people just went for what they needed. Um, and so that's what really drove it. It wasn't ideological. Welcome to Articulated. I'm Nora Daniels, Advancement Associate at the Archives of American Art. And I'm Thomas Edwards, Assistant to the Director and Deputy Director. Support for this podcast comes from the Alice L. Walton Foundation. In this episode and the next, we'll be talking about queer activist art and collectives formed in response to the AIDS crisis in the United States from the 1980s to today. Since 1958, the Archives of American Art has been amassing the largest collection of oral histories related to the visual arts in the world. These long-form interviews give witness to history as it unfolded through the voices of the figures who lived it. On Articulated, we put these first-hand accounts into dialogue with today's scholars and artists. From 2016 to 2018, the archives collaborated with the Keith Haring Foundation to collect 40 oral histories from artists and art world figures who had been directly affected by the AIDS crisis, culminating in the visual arts and the AIDS epidemic oral history project and symposium. In these episodes, we will retrace the history of the crisis and its impact in the arts. In the early 1980s, the first cases of what would come to be known as HIV-AIDS or human immunodeficiency virus and acquired immunodeficiency syndrome were reported by the CDC. The early victims of the disease were distinguished by so-called opportunistic infections that revealed that their immune systems were not functioning properly. Widespread media coverage uncovered other gay men who were suffering from strange ailments, including clusters in New York and California afflicted by Kaposi's sarcoma, an aggressive and rare cancer. The disease was termed, quote, gay-related immune deficiency, or GRID, often shortened to gay cancer, a new shorthand for what would become one of the most fearsome health crises in U.S. history. While the association with gay men and metropolitan centers marked the outset of the AIDS crisis, the disease did not discriminate. People of color and women were particularly vulnerable. But it wasn't until 1985 that HIV-AIDS was classified as a bloodborne illness that could infect anyone. In a climate of fear, some medical professionals sought to abdicate care for HIV-AIDS patients or anyone they thought might have the infection, which led to special AIDS units in hospitals and dental clinics. The epidemic struck at the core of vibrant art scenes in the U.S., wiping out a generation of innovation while demoralizing and dehumanizing groups that had long been targets of socio-political vitriol. Though we live in a time with effective treatments and prevention strategies, the horrors of the disease and shock at displays of venom towards victims left indelible scars on survivors and witnesses. Julie Alt, a New York-based artist known for her collaborations and synthetic approach to art and knowledge production, weighed those legacies in her 2017 interview. 
I just feel like I'm composed of everything that's happened, but the period of first wave AIDS crisis and its effect on me and circles of closeness and communities, I mean, that's one of the most major things in life. So Uh it's not that I want to put it away. It's not that it goes away, but it's not with me every minute either. Or let's say it's not in... It's not with me in the same way, obviously. It's something that shifts and recedes and comes to the foreground. And sometimes I want to forget. Sometimes I want to address it more. And sometimes if I try to forget it, it comes back, you know, or comes forward of its own, so to speak. Uh So I'm open to all of it, you know. Sir Rodney, a multimedia artist, activist, and writer in the East Village, described the nature of what was lost in his 2017 interview. I think that AIDS created a certain fracture with, with the, within the generational divide because all the young kids that were kids didn't have this community of people out there that were freaks everyone knew about that we're looking at. There was this whole community that was happening out there that people wanted to divorce themselves for, didn't want to hear about, didn't want to talk about. It was too sad. It was too ugly. No, we didn't want to talk about your uncle. Yes, he was sort of, but we don't want to talk about that because it's too sad. So they carried all this stuff because of the stigma around AIDS and the shame and all that sort of stuff, that if AIDS wouldn't have happened, maybe there might have still been the shame with the homosexuality part of it, but the rest of it would have still been passed on in kind of a way. We spoke with Pamela Sneed, a poet and artist who lived through the AIDS crisis in New York, about what it was like for her to live her formative years during the epidemic. Well, it was rather devastating, I have to say, because I was a very young person and I was sort of like a burgeoning poet. I worked at Hetrick Martin Institute. I ran the drop-in center. So I was kind of like front and center, you know, within a queer movement, but also kind of like finding myself and basically everyone just dying all at once you know, or within the span of a few months, a few years, not to mention all the like women poets that were dying from cancer. So you had Audre Lorde and like Pat Parker and June Jordan and you know what I'm saying? So there was like decimation, I think, on all fronts and very like very hard to process. So, yeah, I think it was like a scary time. And then it was also just the scene, the poetry scene or the art scene in the late 80s, early 90s was was pretty brilliant. Like you had performance art and you had like queer stories, you know, being told and you had people of color speaking and then you had all these poets coming to voice. And so it was an incredibly exciting time. And then at the same time, like met with this like devastation. For A.A. Bronson, an artist and former director of Printed Matter, the epidemic resounded through his familial memory. Here's how he described his mother's arrival in New York City during the crisis in his 2017 oral history. You know, I'm A.A. Bronson. I was born Michael Timms in 1946 in Vancouver. My mother was English. She was a war bride from London. She arrived in Vancouver while the war was still going on. And my father was a a pilot with the Canadian Air Force who had been stationed in London and was bombing over, uh, basically bombing Cologne every day for five years or something. 
So they came from a very traumatic situation. And so I was born into this post-war period, which is, I think, very different than the post-war period in the U.S., because the U.S. only came into the war at the very end. So the, I think the effect onto the populace was different, and especially in my case, having uh, an English mother who had lived through both wars and who had um, you know, a lot of experience with death and so on. And I remember my mother coming to visit me in New York around 80, 80 what? Maybe as late as um, 1990, actually. And seeing a homeless person on the street who had a sign which said, you know, I have AIDS, please help. And she said, oh, it's just like the war. I still remember that. Tens of thousands of Americans died from AIDS-related illnesses during the 1980s, each leaving a mark. These personal ties propelled a huge wave of activism. Listen to Julie Tolentino, a multidisciplinary artist, dancer, and choreographer, talk about the death of her uncle, Curtis, the brother of her stepfather, Michael. Curtis was less than a decade older than Julie, and his loss left a profound impression. And his other younger brother was very, very tall beautiful, very spirited young man called Curtis. He was similarly developmentally disabled, like my sister, but he had a little more capacity for living on his own. But, you know, he would live on his own, but then sometimes he would become a little homeless by accident, or he would find himself like in a squatter community or something. But he was gay, and he was just delightful and wonderful, and we'd just hope we could catch him, like, wherever he was living. And he, in 1982, died of what was called GRID at that time. And he, he was living at home. His, what was detrimental to his situation, besides the fact that nobody knew what was wrong with him and he didn't know and, like, we didn't really know exactly what was going on with him. And he also didn't know what was going on with his body. But, you know, he was, like, nearly six foot tall and by the time he died, and when I saw him last, he weighed my, like exactly the weight of my of me, you know, like so he was like eighty pounds or something, and that was absolutely devastating because he went from sort of being someone who was tall and skinny to begin with to being tall, skinny, and not very well, and then to this emaciated within weeks. So that was this kind of incredible impact, and that happened when I was um, still in high school. So. I mean, I can tell that I have just absorbed that so much that like, I don't even talk about it as like this event that I remember until I think about like what I was able to do with what I was learning. You know what I mean? Because we didn't know anything. And he, because his family, Michael's father was a veteran, they were only seeking veteran hospitals and the veteran hospitals were either kicking him out or they were like barely treating him and just sort of expecting him to go home to die. And that happened multiple times where they would kick him out of the hospital. So, so when I came to New York and I started meeting different people, I started realizing I had this like a huge experience that I needed to deal with and had no language for.
Activism in response to the AIDS crisis came at the confluence of pre-existing activist networks, namely feminist and queer activist groups, the National Organization for Women, Reproductive Rights National Network, Lesbian Action Committee, and Gay Liberation Front were all active by the early 1980s. And the devastation of AIDS in communities quickly led to the formation of the Gay Men's Health Crisis in 1982, meeting in Greenwich Village in New York City. The GMHC provided help for those living with AIDS, and one of its co-founders, Larry Kramer, saw the need to adopt the strategies of other activist groups. Kramer was a novelist, known for his fiction and screenplays, who founded ACT UP, or the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, in 1987, a group that took direct action to encourage research, disrupt discriminatory public health policies, and combat social stigmas facing people affected by HIV-AIDS. The group was formed at the Lesbian and Gay Community Services Center in New York, where they met for years. The group embraced radical democracy, having no hierarchy other than two main committees, issues and actions. Rather than codifying the group's structure, ACT UP mobilized affinity groups, which allowed members with particular interests or ideas to focus on discrete tasks. There were also caucuses, such as the Women's Caucus and the Latino-Latina Caucus. Meetings opened with a powerful motto. The AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power is a diverse, nonpartisan group of individuals, united in anger and committed to direct action to end the AIDS crisis. We spoke with Sarah Schulman, who was a member of ACT UP and co-founder of the ACT UP Oral History Project. She's currently a distinguished professor at CUNY College of Staten Island, and her new book, Let the Record Show, A Political History of ACT UP New York 1987 to 1993, just came out. Here's how she described ACT UP meetings. Well, you know, those meetings changed over time, and they had different feelings about them. So, you know, there's the meetings that were packed with people standing in the back and people rushing early to get seats and everybody buzzing and the facilitators being cute, people yelling at each other because this is, you know, pre-gentrification New York culture, really caring, really arguing, people not feeling well, people looking quite ill, a lot of moving back and forth going on in the back room, which led out to the garden of the center. So people outside smoking, a table filled with new information that each person would pick up as they walked in. Sometimes the the table was so long, it was the length of the room and it had new studies on it. And so there's all of that. And then I think, you know, five years later, We're in Cooper Union and I'm sitting and that's more like a stadium seating because the room at the center was a former cafeteria and there were folding chairs and all of that. So we're in Cooper Union in the big great hall where Emma Goldman spoke and all of that. And we're all sitting in those seats that are fixed and there's a group of people tearing each other apart and fighting and the rest of us are sitting there watching it and it's terrible. You know, so there's the whole gamut over those many years. Douglas Crimp, an art critic and professor of art history at the University of Rochester, was also an early member of ACT UP. Known for managing the journal October and his innovative work on postmodern art, Crimp talks about how word of mouth drew him to meetings in his 2017 oral history. He told me that I should go to ACT UP. This was probably June 
of 87. And ACT UP had been formed in March. I was aware of their existence. And so I took Greg's advice and I started going to meetings. And then, you know, the rest is history, so to speak. I mean, I, I then learned very quickly a lot about AIDS. There was an incredible amount of information. You know, you would go into ACT UP meetings and there was a table of flyers and like you would go in and you know, take one of everything and basically have a week's worth of reading, articles that were reproduced, all kinds of stuff. Crimp goes on to detail how ACT UP encouraged him to be an activist within his own sphere of art history dedicating a special issue of October, a significant journal for which he was managing editor, to the AIDS crisis in the art world. And there were people who emerged within all of this as voices of sanity and voices of reason and voices of knowledge and people that you would want to hear speak from the floor. And there were people that you would want not to hear speak from the floor, people who would drive you crazy. The meetings were endlessly long. They started, I think, at 7 o'clock, so nobody had dinner beforehand. And so you would be dying of hunger by the time you got out of there at 11 o'clock or midnight. But they were really electrifying. I mean, the place was crazy. It was people were hanging from the rafters, eventually. And it was also, you know, it became, it became eventually your world. It became something that, even if it was tedious and difficult and and dealing with a an issue that was terrifying to everyone and and we were losing friends and people were getting sick and and so forth at the same time it was also a world of extreme conviviality and community and a, a real sense of rising to an occasion and and doing something about this crisis and being effective. Uh, there was a sense that we were never accomplishing enough fast enough, but that we were actually accomplishing things. And so there was a sense of, of uh, fulfillment in it. But more than anything else, I think there was a sense of, I mean, for me at least, I made a whole bunch of friends in ACT UP. And there's a lot of them are still my friends. I'd made a decision. I can remember this, like a fairly calculated decision. Most people in ACT UP didn't just go to ACT UP meetings and demonstrations and participate in that way, but also joined one or another of the various committees to do more specific work on some specific issue. And I didn't do that, and there, and I there was a period of time when I felt like I wasn't doing my full part. And maybe during the, the time I was working on the AIDS issue of October, I felt like I was was doing my part because I was I was so utterly engrossed in it that it, I couldn't have done anything more. But then after that, I came to the conclusion that what I could do was to bring the knowledge expertise that I already had developed as a as an art critic and as an editor of October, that that's what I could do, that I could write. Kate Eichhorn, Associate Professor of Culture and Media at the New School, elaborated on one of the most efficacious strategies to emerge from the ACT UP meetings. One of the things that happened in the AIDS 
movement is that people reproduce thousands and thousands of pages of medical research papers and redistributed them. Often at the beginning of ACT UP meetings, you walked into the meeting, there'd be a table with all of these materials that you could access. And so the photocopier also played a kind of critical role in a pre-digital era in disseminating medical information that otherwise people would not have had access to. I mean, we now take for granted the fact that we can go online and go to a database like PubMed and access all of that information. In 1985 or 1990 or even 1995, that didn't exist yet. So it was both a a really important research tool and simultaneously the copy machine was a really important tool for activists and artists. People didn't always know that they had access to a Medicaid override form. And so activists just started to actually make copies and hand them out at ACT UP meetings, hand them out at rallies, and even hand them out in other public places, like train stations, bus stations. So everything from the distribution of vital medical forms to refereed medical articles to activist posters like those being produced by the Lesbian Avengers or Fierce Pussy, this is all happening with this curious office technology that dated back to the 1960s that was never intended to be used for any of these purposes. Leah Gonchitano, founder of Participant Inc., a significant nonprofit gallery and art space on the Lower East Side, walked through life she and other activist artists had during the AIDS crisis, both coming from a feminist and queer movement background, and how it shaped every element of her day in her 2017 oral history. It was definitely just like daily life. There was no separation between like art life and activist life. Those were like the same life. So in that period of time, I was spending a, a lot of time in, in New York, you know, for work, to see shows, to have meetings with people, organize things. And, you know, the surface face of New York that I remember was completely, you know, just like a sea of like Jenny Halter, Gorilla Girls, Barbara Crew, packed up everywhere. Grand Fury. I mean, you could not like avert your gaze from a kind of wheat-pasted conversation about all of these things. It was just like a pure visual field of activist messaging. You know, I've been trying to sort of update or grapple with like my own prior period of, I mean, I, I joke with people, it's just like, I spent my entire 20s thinking that Washington, D.C. was all gay people because we would go to D.C. from Boston all the time. <laughs> Like, for, like, gay pride, AIDS demonstrations, and I just had this illusion that Washington, D.C. was just, like, millions of queer people. Like, I had no real tangible understanding of it as an actual place where, like, people lived. I just thought it was, like, 
this giant mass of demonstrating queers, you know, like I'm, I'm actually like, think about that all the time where I'm just like, okay, what would it be like to go now? I mean, I didn't go to DC for the women's March because I had to work and be in New York, but it was kind of like weighing on me really heavily. Like, do I want to disturb my, like, you know, my twenties to 30 year old vision of what it was like or like what it was. Cause it's sort of like dear to me, like this misrepresentation, you know, because that's what we did like all the time. In her 2018 oral history, Julie Tolentino, a multidisciplinary artist and choreographer, gave an account of the diversity within ACT UP and how they came to action. So I think then to walk in the room and then have that feeling of all the people again, like, Mm. I mean, I just, you know what I mean? Like it was, it was so intense. And I always say that there's like walking into that situation was like, you know, there was like. 15 different act ups in one room and my memories of them. And, you know, there was sort of the front of the room and the kind of um, somewhat noisy middle. And then there was sort of this women's area. And then there was this kind of quiet middle. And then there was this back of the room that was sort of the people of color section. And I remember being really torn about where I thought I was supposed to be in the room. And I sort of knew who I couldn't be in the room and I, who I could and couldn't identify with, and also who I could trust. You know, like there were some very vocal people in ACT UP I felt like I could trust, and some that I could just trust to be aggravated. And I just, I felt like I could trust the way that they were using their emotion to get people to make, you know, bolder moves. But I remember also um, really taking in the kind of grumbling of, a more complex situation, which were like women with AIDS and folks of color who didn't have the same kind of like resources or access and even situations like, you know, you don't just leave work and go to an action. So I felt like I, especially in the beginning, knew that moving around the room was part of learning about ACT UP, that affinity, like this idea of a, of a room of affinity groups was going to really teach me a lot. So when I say 15 different act ups, I think, I mean, ultimately what was incredible was that everyone wanted to be in the room. So there was one act up being in the room and the idea that everyone was going to, was very willing to be part of this kind of affinity, this sort of sense of affinity, but also that, you know, if you really threw out an idea and you really had, you know, you had an idea, people would be there for that. Like, I feel like that's what I mean when I say there's a lot of act ups. Like, it was, it's almost, it was like a prism of all of this nuanced knowledge with everyone looking for information and not necessarily the cure, but like these very, very immediate needs. So I feel like, you know, if you were going to join any of these or if you're going to sort of put yourself in as a participant, you would maybe be moving from one kind of like, micro situation to a meta one and you'd have to be able to adjust very quickly and and also possibly you know figure out the interface or the way that some of those concepts could somehow work together you know like if you'd been working in the women in aids group like how could that how is the women in aids group doing like what was that 
if it was a sort of an education moment, if that was the focus, like what would happen when there was another group that was working with women in AIDS in housing or, you know, like medical access or something. So there were just ways that everything, like when I think that's one of the frustrations about talking about ACT UP is it sort of sounds like, of course, everyone's on the same page and, and it's true, but it was hard to think about how that was working all the time for immediate needs. Sarah Schulman, former member of ACT UP, founder of the ACT UP Oral History Project, and author of Let the Record Show, described the affinity groups and the power of radical democracy in the meetings. The thing that I think made ACT UP most effective was something that people were almost unconscious about, which was the radical democracy. And no one ever sat down and said, we must have radical democracy. And that means that we don't have consensus. Like it was never theorized because ACT UP did not theorize itself. It just emerged because the organization was trying to serve the needs of people who were dying and who were racing against the clock. And therefore, they needed to be as effective as possible. And that just kind of organically meant no theory debates, right, and no bureaucracy. And people just went for what they needed. Um, And so that's what really drove it. It wasn't ideological. But there was only a one-line statement of unity, direct action to end the AIDS crisis. That was it. So if that was what you were doing, you could pretty much do anything. And if you had, let's say, I mean, like, let's go back to needle exchange, which was very controversial. The concept of harm reduction, which really pervaded ACT UP as a philosophy, even though it wasn't stated that way, uh, had not become popular yet. And let's say you, you were somebody in ACT UP who didn't want ACT UP to be involved in needle exchange. You would argue and you would argue fiercely and you would be self-righteous and you would you know, grandstand and you would do all that stuff. But in the end, if you didn't like it, you just wouldn't do it. And the people who wanted to do it, let them do it. And then you would find other people who wanted to do what you wanted to do and you would just go do that. And that's kind of how everybody just shook out. And what that produced was a wide, wide range of campaigns on all different levels. We're using all kinds of aesthetics and completely different approaches in very different social strata, all happening at the same time. And that's really what created the paradigm shift. And, you know, it's illuminating because if you look at movements that try to force everybody into one analysis or one strategy, they all fail. And I've yet to find an exception to that. I mean, I was just same as everybody else. You know, everybody in ACT UP thought that what they and their friends were doing was what ACT UP was doing. And then when I would start interviewing people, I found out about things I had no idea existed. And so did they. One affinity group in ACT UP was Grand Fury, the name for a then-anonymous collective of artists who created the posters and protest signs for the movement. They described themselves as, quote, a band of individuals united in anger and dedicated to the power of art. And they were known for appropriating commercial visual idioms into their work. Grand Fury led significant campaigns such as Silence Equals Death, which included the pink triangle that marked gay men incarcerated by the Nazi regime during the Holocaust. Kissing Doesn't Kill was another landmark public art effort, covering buses and subway lines in major cities across the U.S. 
While the 11 members of Grand Fury came together out of ACT UP meetings, the group gradually became more distinct from their origins. Commissioned by many to create posters and other graphic works, Grand Fury worked alongside many New York City organizations. One was The Kitchen, a nonprofit in Chelsea that has nurtured cutting-edge performance, film, and installation art since the 1970s. But even there, the group met some controversy. We spoke with Lumi Tan, senior curator at The Kitchen, about that chapter of institutional history. In 1988, the marketing director of The Kitchen asked Grand Fury to design our monthly programming calendar. So this is something that like, we always had maybe designed it in-house or, or commissioned artists in the season to create for us. So the fall 1988 poster was commissioned from Grand Fury, and it said, with 42,000 dead, art is not enough take collective direct action to end the AIDS crisis, which is, you know, a fairly clear, relatively uncontroversial message. And then it had, you know, it's at the kitchen, it had dates of the programs just below that with very little description. And, you know, you make these assumptions around, you know, this was 1988, this wasn't 1984, this wasn't, you know, extremely early in the AIDS crisis, Grand Fury was really, you know, an established collective at that point. And so you make these assumptions that, you know, like the kitchen is part of a very specific community that is supportive of AIDS activism that, you know, is, I'm sure has like many, let's say, staff members participating in ACT UP or other forms of AIDS activism. And, you know, the story has unfolded um, thanks to um, the artist Tuesday Smiley, who's been doing research in our archives that, you know, this was actually an extremely controversial decision that, you know, a lot of the artists who were on the poster uh, were very upset about being associated, you know, like, or like that they're not associated, but maybe like that their promotion of their program was being like co-opted by this message. Um, And the like the marketing director of the kitchen actually resigned over this you know, how big of a controversy this could have been in such a small institution at the time. But it really just speaks to the assumptions of like, you know, what, what communities were within an institution like the kitchen, which you think of as extremely experimental, you know, uh, like a home for, for queer performance, a home for queer audiences, a place where the AIDS crisis was really living on on a day to day basis. While Grand Fury was mostly anonymous, the group largely reflected ACT UP's population, which is to say white queer people were the majority. Robert Vasquez Pacheco is an artist and writer in New York, and he talked about his experience as the only person of color in Grand Fury in his 2017 oral history with Ted Kerr. I had heard about Grand Fury, you know, and Grand Fury is mysterious, you know, because they were a closed, they were the closed affinity group. So, so, so nobody knew who was in Grand Fury. People knew that some, everyone, it was so funny. Everyone had a suspicion, oh, so-and-so's in, so-and-so, but no one knew. Because Grand Fury started, you know, and initially when they did the window, it was 50 people that pulled it together. But after that, what happened was the collective, in order to do work, you couldn't have 50 people walking in and out of room. So you had to, you had to close it, and that's what they had done. So I was on a panel, and Tom Kalin was on the panel, who's a member of Grand Fury. And we were talking about art, and I said, well, you know, I don't see a lot of work by people of color in general, but certainly not about AIDS. So, you know, and I was talking about that's a problem. 
And then I specifically called out Grand Fury and I said something like, I'm sure that Grand Fury doesn't have any people of color in it <laughs> at all. Yeah. You know? So it ended. The panel ended. Got back to New York. Not too long after we got back, very shortly after we got back, I got a call from Tom. Do you want to join Grand Fury? And again, I had that re reaction like, oh, why did you open your mouth? Okay, once again, I said, sure, let me join. And so, and so I went in to Grand Fury, and that's where the, where the, Grand, you know, the sort of Grand Fury stuff started. So before that, Grand Fury had done a poster. Uh -huh. They had done their, the first sort of official Grand Fury piece was the one in 61 poster, which talks about black and Hispanic kids. Every one in 61 black have AIDS. They had done it. They had done bilingual editions of it. I went up to El Barrio by myself to wheat paste. I wheat pasted posters up there by myself one, one, like one or two nights. You know, I did it because it was like, you know what? Putting this in Spanish, talking about Latinos and doing it in the West Village, you know, or in the East Village, unless you're going to go to the, the housing projects all the way at the end, it doesn't mean anything. It just, it's show. So I, so I did that. And then after that, I was part of Fury and started to collaborate with them on the various works that we did. For me, it was a way to be creative in specific way in the arts mm -hmm. that was important to me. It was a way to be political. It was a way to have at least some sort of representation of people of color in what I considered a very important, you know. And to be clear, you were the only person of color. I was and remain the only person of color. Was there a way in which that was a live dynamic within the room? Like, was it, were you often, did you feel like you had to be a spokesperson for people of color? I, I always feel as if I have to be a spokesperson for people of color because I feel a responsibility as a person of color. And this is me, it's interesting that white people don't know that people of color we have, we feel this, we, we're given this, although it may not be, you know, it may be subtle, it may not be, they tell you this, but sort of, you know, that whole uplift the race thing that mm -hmm. I think it was W.E.B. Dubois said, mm -hmm. and that is a real thing that, isn't, that happens with people of color in, in, in our communities. So I felt like I was a spokesmodel for people of color, and I also felt that I was a spokesmodel for poor people because I grew up, you know, working poor. And everyone else in Grand Fury, you know, grew up, um, let us say, you know, middle class, middle class, mm -hmm. nice middle class families. So there was that class stuff and the racial stuff that I felt that I had to, had to talk about and, and did. I would, you know, uh, fortunately, uh, in many of the discussions in Fury, I didn't have to sort of take them to task for being sort of racially insensitive or anything like that. You know, Marlene was also part of it. So Marlene, you know, we were, Marlene and I would talk, talk you know, refer to ourselves sort of as a, Avram, myself, and my, Marlene were the emotional minorities, you know. <laughs> it's beautiful. Everyone else was a wasp, essentially. So, so any issue about, you know, that talked about race or anything else. Obviously, one of the things that automatically happened, although it, it would have happened anyway, I think, in, in Grand Fury, you said, of course, our work became bilingual because <laughs> it had to be. And in the 80s and 90s, being a person of color, especially a queer person of color, came with additional risk with policing and systemic racism. We spoke with poet artist Pamela Sneed, author of Funeral Diva, who emphasized how that additional risk shaped who became prominent media fodder in AIDS activism during the 1990s. As like a Black lesbian, we also weren't really allowed to like kind of have a voice. So in the sense that there wasn't like a lot of literature 
there wasn't a public reckoning. There wasn't an, an, an acknowledgement of that time, really, you know, until the last couple of years. So I was always committed to writing about my friends. And then also as a Black lesbian, you know, it was sort of like history was very fragmented or segregated in terms of gender. So it was like, oh, okay, this was only happening to men. And it's like, well, no, that's not exactly how it happened. And in all of our, all of our experiences and lives were intertwined. So HIV AIDS, you know, very much impacted me. What was happening to my friends, how I grew as a poet, how I wasn't allowed to grow. And then like not to have the acknowledgement. And then there's the other piece, like, I'm really happy, you know, you were talking about like people of color and centering, you know, Fred Weston and stuff like that, because then there was this other segregation around race, right? And so then like ACT UP was only being centered or like white men were only being centered. And part of like, you know, my work now is to ask people not to center like ACT UP. They were, they did really important work. But a lot of us did like really important work with regard to people of color. I mean, we couldn't get arrested. You know what I'm saying? And so you can't be black and queer and then have a record and then, you know, end up with a really posh job. It just doesn't happen like that. So in a way, it was kind of like privileging like one history over another history and not really understanding or even like just the ferocity of like some individuals, you know, and um organizations like I was I was having a talk the other day we were talking about with some black uh, queer people about the uh, AIDS era you know we were talking about like a hundred years before Stonewall black queers in in Harlem were throwing balls in salons and stuff like that so it was like so there was courage you know under fire for a very long time or you know I'm getting ready to do a piece on Big Mama Thornton and basically, you know, what about all these like black queer blues singers, you know, women who like, you know, who paved the way? I think our history in the way that we tell it has to be much more encompassing. And so I'm really glad that there is an acknowledgement because I've been grieving for a long time and I've been holding these stories for a long time. And Lumi Tan, senior curator at The Kitchen told us about the visible and invisible aspects of protest then and today. Thinking about what was said in Julie Tolentino's oral history around like the importance of being like a present body in the room of those ACT UP meetings or like the kind of choreography of activism. I think there's been such an expansion around like what it means to like not be a body in those spaces too and, and how that really applies to like performance you know, I think in, in one sense, that's an expanded conversation around what happens when, like, are you not an activist if you can't be on the street? You know, like, that doesn't make any sense, right? Like, that's a notion that we, that especially I think during like the Black Lives Matter protests last summer, like, was really reinforced about like, you know, everyone can participate in these protests. It doesn't mean putting your body on the line or exhausting yourself when you can't, you know, when you you physically are not able to do that.
While ACT UP had an enormous presence and made substantive changes in public policies around the AIDS crisis, most notably as Sarah Schulman argues in her book, Let the Record Show, changing the CDC's definition of the infection to include women, they were part of a larger network of activism that had been cultivated across generations and throughout diverse populations. In addition to ACT UP, groups like Men of Color Coming Together, Salsa Soul Sisters, Guerrilla Girls, Dyke Action Machine, and Camp Sister Spirit enabled queer expression in a time of rampant and codified homophobia. Here's how A.A. Bronson, artist and former director of Printed Matter, described his experience with ACT UP as an older outsider. Because we were there really illegally, I mean, we didn't have visas to be there. We were just, we just kind of went, didn't even occur to us to try and be illegal. It's funny. We didn't, like, we didn't get involved with ACT UP. Also, ACT UP was a different generation. It was a generation younger than us. We were at that point, I mean, in 86, when we moved to New York, I was 40 years old. So we were actually much older than, than the whole generation in their 20s, it's activist generation. And so... Um, we were our own little bubble. And the other thing was that, in relation to AIDS, and the other thing was that because we had all these international contacts and we're constantly doing exhibitions internationally, our work had to be, had to be possible to show it in, outside of the U.S., you know. Like, we couldn't do the kind of things that ACT UP were doing because those could only be really read in an American context. So the AIDS logo was kind of perfect because the Robert Indiana image had long ago escaped into the mainstream. You know, like even a teenager in Cologne knew that our AIDS logo should say love, even if they'd never heard of Robert Indiana. And Sarah Schulman, ACT UP member and author of Let the Record Show, told us about how she understood the group's dynamics at the time. So ACT UP was a predominantly gay, white, male organization, but there, were, there was a significant participation by women and by people of color. And I say significant, not numerically necessarily, but because those tended to be the people with more political experience before AIDS. Well, the older gay men had been in gay liberation, but many of the younger ones had never been politically active. So you had women who came from the reproductive rights movement, who came from the feminist women's health movement, the peace movement, and they literally brought with them substantive strategies and ways of political thinking that they gave to the organization through this structure called teach-ins. If you analyze the interviews over and over again, people will say people with AIDS are the experts. Everything was looked at from the point of view of people with AIDS. And that comes from, you know, this feminist movement. Or someone like Jamie Bauer, who had been part of the Women's Pentagon Action and the Women's Peace Movement of the late 1970s, and who came in with civil disobedience training, which was like a centerpiece of people's identities. ACT UP was a prominent face among the many groups advocating for those affected by the AIDS crisis, and their ongoing work and legacy interlaces with the groundbreaking activism on behalf of queer people, people of color, Native people, and women from the 1960s to today. 
Due to this advocacy, innovations in science and healthcare have led to extremely effective treatment and prevention programs for HIV and AIDS, which is no longer a death sentence. In his 2016 oral history, Avram Finkelstein, one of the members of Grand Fury and a New York City-based artist, writer, and activist, described the dangers of reducing the HIV-AIDS crisis to one variable. If you want to think of it in terms of the HIV as a metaphor, these are the reservoirs in the body politic where HIV stigma is, has hidden, right. has been hidden. And if we're spending all this energy trying to eradicate HIV from the body in an effort to end the AIDS crisis, it could end tomorrow and criminalist people would still be in jail and there would still be decades of case law to uh -huh. keep them there. So that we, we have a fantasy about, about mediating HIV AIDS only in terms of viral suppression. But the AIDS crisis was not caused by the virus. It was caused by social circumstances. So there's no eradication of HIV AIDS without eradicating stigma, criminalization, transphobia, racism, and misogyny. Right. There's no way to do it. And if you're content to think that a cure or a curative or a functional cure people in the HIV community argue about the exact meaning of those things and which of those things we should be striving for. Even if we had all of that tomorrow, you're talking about 36 million people globally who are living with HIV. How many people is the medication not going to work on? And how many people aren't going to be able to get it? And what about people who can get it and still be accused of exposing their long-term partners to it? Mm -hmm. Those things don't go away. It sends a shiver down my spine to think that after two decades, or going into the third decade of HIV, the HIV-AIDS pandemic, that there should still be an imaginary wall between people who are living with HIV and people who are HIV-negative mm, is yeah. shocking and disturbing to me. Kiela Beja, an artist who uses photography, performance, and film, contrasts to the stigma she witnessed growing up with what she's learned in adulthood and how her experience drives her work today. I think like in the 90s or the early 2000s, I'll never forget there was this commercial on MTV. It was like a some kind of campaign commercial. And it was these three couples and each of them were in this like really beautiful, like loving, sexual, romantic situation. And then at the end of like the situation of these, you know, three couples, someone pulled out a gun and shot the other person in the head. And then the end of the commercial was like a condom with a bullet in it. And it was like, protect yourself from HIV or like something like that. It was like something along those lines. And I was mortified, just mortified. So to see commercials now that are like, oh, if you're HIV positive, like keep loving yourself and this, that, and the third, I'm like, wow, like things are shifting. There is change that's happening and that's beautiful. But then at the same time, I saw a commercial recently that was for another PrEP medication that's not Truvada. And in the commercial, it says very specifically that the medication that was for PrEP was not for people born female. And I thought that that was so interesting. And it was like this reminder about how, you know, within the HIV AIDS narrative, still we don't study women enough. And th that's not just for HIV alone. That's for just kind of in general, you know, 
And so to see that commercial, like, wow, like, okay, they're still leaving us out. You know, we still don't have 100% access because we're still not in focus. You know, what I've realized is that I'm only human and we're all different, especially at our, as, an, as an artist, you know, we have to go on our own path and make our own way. And if I make work about HIV, because that's what comes out of me, I have to let that happen. And I can't block that or say, I don't want to do that because I want to be a certain kind of artist that isn't pigeon held, you know, you know, I'm making things that are important to me. So I've circled back to it and I've let myself open up my heart even bigger and continue to do my research and know that my journey making work about HIV is not over um, because AIDS is not over because there is no cure because this is something that until there is a cure that I will live with for the rest of my life. And, you know, like I've said before, I've, I've been in this since I was a little girl and as life progresses and changes, so will I, and so will my body. And, you know, that will bring opportunity for me to continue to explore what it means for me to live with this virus or for this virus actually to live with me. You know, how do we cope and deal with each other and relate to each other? And how can I express that or work through that in an artistic way? So now I'm continuing to investigate what it means now to be a woman, you know, because I've been a child and now I am a woman, a grown woman. And what that means and what it means for the greater community of women, non-binary folks living with HIV today, what are the issues that we're looking at? In his 2017 oral history, multidisciplinary artist Lyle Ashton Harris remarked upon new generations' willingness to engage with civil and social issues head-on as a direct legacy of activism that sparked in response to the AIDS crisis. So I'm super inspired by your generation. The same other questions are being asked. I see in my students, I'm seeing in regards of, in regards of let's say, their ethnicity, whatever, there is a, an urgency to, to make up for the generation before, because in a way, they, they, they have, there's been a lack of, let's say, consciousness around ethical responsibility, as far as I'm concerned. So this has become like a major, not only you know, ethical question, but it's a question of you know, the, the, the violence of, of the lack of inclusion, period, and taking it seriously, and by any means necessary. We caught up with Ted Kerr, one of the archives' interviewers from the Visual Arts and the AIDS Epidemic Oral History Project, to hear about how those interviews continue to shape his life and advocacy work. I think people who, who are dealing with HIV or who lead through their queerness can't help but always be intersectional in their approach. And I guess for me personally, I would say I'm part of a collective called What Would an HIV Doula Do?, and we're a group of people who understand a doula as someone who holds space during times of transition and that HIV is a series of transitions that start long before uh, you ever get an HIV test and continue through treatment and last long after death. And so the thing that has changed for me over the last few years is I would say people's, people's awareness or people's ability to think about health and illness and disability as at least on a spectrum rather than a diagnosis. And that's something that gives me a little bit of hope in the future. Um, And I think that oral histories play an important part of that because 
they get down on paper and get in our ears the lived experiences of people who have had to learn these lessons before and they they wait for us to read them or listen to them for when we're ready to hear them again For show notes, works cited, and additional resources, visit aaa.si.edu slash articulated. This podcast is produced by Ben Gillespie and Michelle Herman from the Smithsonian Archives of American Art. Audio engineering is by Hannah Hethman of Better Lemon Creative Audio. Our music comes from Sound and Smoke, composed by Viet Quang and performed by the Peabody Wind Ensemble, with Harlan Parker conducting. Special thanks to Nora Daniels and Thomas Edwards for narrating this episode. The Archives of American Art at the Smithsonian Institution is a nonprofit organization that relies on donations from individuals like you to sustain our ongoing operations and special programs like Articulated. To support our work, please visit our website at aaa.si.edu support. Thank you.